We are in a framework series. That's, uh, that's what we're working through over the course of the last five weeks and moving forward for seven more weeks. We're spending time talking through the doctrines of what we believe. And the way that we've approached this series, and just to be, I like to be really upfront about this because I think it's important, is rather than try to convince you of what we think is true as Christians, we're actually operating off of the premise that you've given your life to Jesus and you would want to know what does the Bible tell me to believe. Because a lot of us struggle to actually wrap our heads and our hearts around that. What do I think about God? What am I supposed to believe about the church? How does the Bible talk about the Holy Spirit? Or what does the Bible say about itself? That was last week. And so the premise of this is saying, okay, we, we agree that this is our building block and where we want to start. So now let's talk about what it says about certain uh, particular areas of theology and what we're supposed to believe so that we can build out our worldview. Today we're going to be talking about two different doctrines, the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of man is uh, in a fancy way called anthropology. You might have taken that uh, in college or shopped there recently. Um, And it's basically the idea of what does the Bible teach about humanity? How do we think about the state of man? Okay, and just so you know, whenever the Bible talks about, not every time the Bible talks about man, but very often when the Bible talks about man, the word Adam means humanity. It's not talking about gender, male, female, that type of a thing. It's just talking about humankind. And that's an important thing to remember that, that when we'll talk about humanity, we are uh, referencing male and female often together in humanity. And so if the word man kind of gets you hung up on, is there a difference in how God views women, not according to the, the passages that we're going to be looking at, we see something very, very cool about the image of God. We'll get there. The second one that we're going to be talking about is the doctrine of sin. It's called hamartiology. Uh, the Greek word hamartia means sin, and it, it's hard for us to say we're going to teach on man and sin in the same week because you would want to talk about man and all of the, the goodness of the humanity that God's created and then maybe separately deal with sin and its implications. But the problem is those two are totally intertwined throughout the scriptures. Uh, we're going to talk about the imago Dei, the image of God. That's something that's talked about in Genesis. And when you think about it, I have a friend named DJ that talks about it this way. He says, the imago Dei is both beautiful and broken. It's beautiful in how God created it. It's broken. It's, there's this, this tainted component to it in our sinfulness. But we have to understand both sides of that. After last service, a guy named Mark Avery in the church sent me a message. And he said, as you were talking, I got this picture of a pair of binoculars. And it's the idea of bringing your left eye and your right eye together in focus. We need both uh, the beauty of humanity and the brokenness of humanity to best understand how we stand before God and where we're at. And I thought that was a great picture of just taking a pair of binoculars and actually trying to find focus. And that's what we'll be working on today with talking about the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin together. Okay? So with man, we're going to talk about uh, how we were created and what that says about us. We're going to talk about the special relationship that we have with God. Those are going to be the primary areas that we talk about humanity and that doctrine. And then with sin, we're going to define it and talk about what it is. We're going to talk about how it got here and what it does to us today. Like, what's the state of sinfulness today? Um, And unfortunately, we won't get to any kind of hope of the gospel today. It's that kind of a message. Next week, Rob Patterson will be teaching on salvation, and that's the picture. That's the hope of the future. Are you familiar with the painter Rembrandt? Have you guys seen a a Rembrandt painting? Uh, The the painter Rembrandt from, I don't know, 1700s or something like that. You can Wikipedia me on that if you want. Uh, He used to start every single painting by painting the entire canvas black. And so that every, every art that, that Rembrandt has done, entire canvas black, and then he would bring a single uh, pinpoint of light to the center of the picture and actually build out from the center of the picture this painting of light. And that's essentially what we'll be doing today is painting the canvas black. We're going to talk about the doctrine of sin and the issues that are related to that. And next week is that pinprick of light and then building out the picture of redemption from what God has done through Jesus. So just giving you that idea, if you leave here depressed and discouraged, um, there's hope. All right, let's dig in. Um, We're going to talk about the doctrine of mankind, and to do that, we have to go to Genesis, and we have to talk about humanity and creation, because that's where we understand a lot of our identity. It's where we've been 
imprinted with the identity that God speaks over us. And again, to remember, if we're forming our worldview out of what God has said, then we take his words about us and we start to believe what's true about us based on what God has said about us. And that's what we're going to be doing. So go to Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning. It's on the first page. And, uh, and go to verse 27 and 28, which might not be on the first page, depending on your Bible. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. It starts with this. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So when we talk about the image of God, we're going to talk about it in a few different ways, and this has to do with our identity in humanity, that we're created in the image of God. What does that mean? Is it our physical bodies? Is it, does it have something to do with uh, how we look as human beings? Does God look like us when we go to heaven? Are we going to see, are we going to see God in, in a tangible, human-like body, or is it something different than that? Uh, there's a theologian named Preston Sprinkle. He actually brings all of these thoughts together. He says it this way. He says, theologians have wrestled for years with what it means to bear God's image. It's the image of God tied to our rational minds, our capacity for relationships, our elevated status, some combination of these three or something entirely different. Whatever the image of God points to, one thing is rather, rather clear, our bodies are essential to bearing God's image. What God made when he created us does carry with it the image of God. And that's an imprint of a series of things. How we think, how we feel, our bodies and the way that they are a part of our redemption story. I don't know if you've ever read through the New Testament. It says your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. There's a, a specific doctrine around the physical human body. There's something about that that has imprinted on it the image of God. And so we take all of these things and we understand that humanity has been given an identity by God. The imago Dei is part of our identity. And we have to keep that as core. And that actually teaches us about human dignity. As Christians, we are going to approach humanity differently than maybe the way that the rest of the world approaches humanity. Okay, we've been to Nepal before. I've personally been to Nepal before, which is largely dominated by Hinduism and Buddhism. And it's an interesting culture where uh, humanity is somewhat disposable. When people get too old and you don't want to take care of them anymore, you drop them off at the river and let them fend for themselves. If you don't want your children, you drop them off at the river and you let them fend for themselves. If somebody's in poverty, you don't help them because karma brought that on them. And it would actually be bad karma for you to help that person uh, get out of their punishment. And so there's this very strange view of humanity it's, that's different than followers of Jesus. Embedded in our understanding of the Imago Dei is that we would approach people with a baseline human dignity that is that person is made in the image of God. We don't view them through any other lens and that they are specially and uniquely imprinted with God's image and if I treat them otherwise, I'm actually, I'm violating the image of God. I'm doing something that brings damage in that way to something that God has spoken over that person and declared to be true. So again, if we're letting the scriptures inform our worldview, our, the scriptures teach us about human dignity and how to, how to treat another human being. It's we would hope that the whole world would have that view of human dignity. We would hope that every human being would have that view of human dignity. At the very least, we need to impress upon followers of Jesus that there is no view of humanity apart from the Imago Dei, and that needs to inform how you see another human being and how you treat another human being, that it is embedded in that person that they are made in the image of God. Now let's take a moment and let's talk about the special relationship that humanity has with God. It's different than all the other creatures. Let's look at this. Genesis 2.7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. 
Okay, this isn't talking about uh, God animating dead flesh. So he breathed into him and all of a sudden he has biological function. We're actually talking about something different. Theologians will compare this moment of God breathing into his nostrils the breath of life to when Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is life in the first creation. This is life in the new creation. But it actually has to do with soul, with personhood with bringing to awareness, with bringing into the world our being, our person, our soul, our, our whole self. God is bringing in through this breathing into the nostrils the breath of life. In this passage, it's, it's helping us see that we're different than the other animals. We're different than other creatures. We think differently. We feel differently. I know a lot of us have dogs, and we might see our dog get sad, and we're like, oh, my dog gets sad just like me. And we see our dog get happy, and we're like, oh, my dog gets happy just like me. And this is what I do when I'm happy. And we start to think about, oh, these are, they're just like me. Well, the Bible actually teaches us that they're not just like you. They, they don't have the same status with God that you have. I know, I know that the 90s told us that all dogs go to heaven. I realize that. But it's important to understand that there is a different relationship that God has with humanity than he has with every other kind of animal. And that relationship with humanity comes through this picture of God breathing into humanity the breath of life. And with that, we start to see partnership. We start to see God working in partnership with humanity in this world, engaging with us in bringing about an ultimate storyline of restoring all things to himself. That does come after the fall. But this picture of restoring all things to himself and that partnership is the basis of any covenant that God makes with humanity. So when God says, I will be to you your God and you will be my people, he says that to, the, uh, to Moses in Exodus, to Israel in Exodus, he repeats that line over and over and over. I will be to you your God and you will be my people. He is marking that there's a special covenant relationship with humanity that he's not making with other, with other people and things. Okay, a couple of passages that kind of help us wrap our heads around this special relationship. This is Psalm 8.4. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? This is Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So Psalm 139, 13 through 16, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. For us as followers of Jesus, this is what informs our understanding of human life. That's why abortion is such a tender topic for Christians. It, we don't address it flippantly. We look at it with a worldview built from the scriptures about humanity. We believe that a child in the womb, and that's often referred to as a fetus or a preborn child, they are something more than tissue or biology. That God is forming humanity in the womb of a mother is part of our understanding of creation. He's building something that's actually an important part of why we would say that abortion is wrong. It's not just that we want the world to look a certain way or we want our political side to win or we want things to be like we would imagine them to be in America. That actually is a separate issue altogether. The political side is a separate issue. This has to do with that we believe that humanity is made in the image of God and that God is intimately involved in the creation of every human child. And we need to process our worldview through that lens. Look at the two passages, Psalm 139 and Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, Who's the speaker in Jeremiah 1.5? That's God. I formed you. David writes in Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. There's this relationship that has to do with the physical self, but it actually goes beyond the physical body when David writes in Psalm 139 that 
In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So as we build out our view of how we see the world, we actually let the scriptures inform our understanding of what humanity is and how we are to understand it and treat it as followers of Jesus. Understanding this special relationship informs our worldview around humanity and how we relate to him and how we relate to each other. And when the Imago Dei, when we get that, when we get the Imago Dei and embed it in our souls, it causes us to treat people differently. They are not there for our gain. Okay, and you could imagine the implications. I would go into all the implications of these statements, but you could imagine them. People are not there for our gain. They're not there for our advantage. They're not there for our pleasure. They are not there for our purpose. They are themselves made in the image of God, and therefore he loves them and has written about their days in his book before one of them came to be. Shapes our worldview. Changes the way we think. Genesis gives us one more key passage on the creation of humanity, then we'll move into uh, sin. Genesis says this in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them, and he named them mankind, and they were created. So in Genesis 5, this is uh, the storyline after the, the fall, where sin enters the world, which happens in Genesis 3. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. So after that moment... The scriptures had an opportunity to say we were created in the image of God and that was obliterated by sin and now the imago Dei, the image of God, no longer uh, exists in humanity. But that's not what the Bible says. After the fall, the Bible continues to affirm the imago Dei, continues to affirm the image of God in humanity. So this wasn't something that was contained in our perfect, sinless humanity in the garden and then when we sinned, it was gone but it's actually something that carries on from generation to generation as it's about to get into a genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. Let me tell you about the generations of Adam that are made in the image and likeness of God. That's the picture that we get, is that that is ongoing. Now, there is a, a brokenness to it that comes in sin, and this is an important thing for us to understand, and so we're going to take some time and talk about the doctrine of sin. We're going to talk about what it is first, and then we'll kind of go a little bit backwards and talk about how it got here. So first of all, you might have heard a sermon preached on sin before, the word hamartia and the uh, corresponding Hebrew word that I won't try and pronounce. Uh, they both mean missing the mark. And you may have heard that. It's an archery term, and it talks about missing the mark. And there was a really helpful author that said, I get it. It's an archery term. It talks about missing the mark. But a biblical idea of sin it's not just that we're these expert archers and we have the mark and we aim at it and maybe we sneezed and we missed by a couple inches. That would be a faulty view of sin, but rather we don't have the strength to pull the string back. We couldn't pick out the right arrow to put in the bow and we then, if we were able to, would have no idea how to even aim it. We are utterly incapable of firing the arrow, let alone hitting the mark. Sometimes with our sinfulness, we just think, oh, I just... I'm just a little off. I've got this. I'm a basically good human being, and I just miss from time to time, like we all do. But for the most part, I'm hitting that target over and over and over and over. And it's important for us to understand that the doctrine of sin actually teaches us some different things. So I'm going to pull out my black paintbrush here for just a minute and take this beautiful canvas that God made for us, and we're going to get real dark here real quick. So bear with me. All right, Wayne Grudem, theologian, defines sin in this way. He says, sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Each of those words are important, act, attitude, or nature. Sin not only includes individual acts such as stealing or lying or committing murder, but also attitudes that are contrary to the attitudes that God requires of us. And then going on to talk about the nature, that there's actually a, there's an issue in our own being now that sin has entered the world. We'll talk about that a little bit more. There's a really helpful book called The New City Catechism that defines sin in this way as rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. So sin 
when we talk about what it is, is not just that we were getting pretty close to being good people and we missed. But sin has to do with the very nature of being, we would say separated from God, but that's not just separated from God in distance, that's separated from God in our ability to do what is good and right. We are corrupt. And there's some challenges to that, to believing in a sin nature. The Bible actually teaches us some things about how sin entered the world, and it's both helpful and difficult. This is Romans 5.12. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You might look at that and say, okay, so the, the Bible teaches us that because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, that somehow sin infected all of humanity and all of the world itself, and your attitude might be to say, that's not fair. I didn't get a shot. I was born into a deficit. And the reality is that is what the Bible teaches, that we're born into a deficit. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It's saying, look, the whole backdrop of your life was sinfulness. You were born into it both in the fact that sin already existed in the world and that you yourself were born into a spiritual deficit. The Bible calls this being dead in our sins. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So all that was like activity, sin activity, and then there's this. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That there's something now in our nature that is inherently sinful as a part of the biblical teaching of the doctrine of sin. And we need to understand that. And here's the thing. You might think, why is this so important? Why can't I believe that we're basically good, that humanity's born into some innocence and we're all just doing our best to try and work it out? Why can't I believe that? And part of the problem is, if we don't believe what the Bible teaches about sin, then we also then can't believe what the Bible teaches about salvation. Because the biblical teaching on salvation is built entirely off of the biblical view of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not even one. The wages of sin is death. These are passages from Romans that talk about the utter defeat of sin on humanity. Now, it's not just humanity. <laughs> I'm not done putting with my paintbrush. It's not just humanity. But the world itself is in a state of corruption. Peter talks about this in 2 Peter 1.3. He's actually talking about it in a hopeful way that when we meet Jesus, we can escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. But the reality, the picture of the world that the Bible paints is that it is in a state of corruption. And a picture of it would be like this. So let's say uh, Adam and Eve, the first generation, they sin and they have kids. And then Cain, is it Cain murders Abel? Sometimes I forget. I just remember Cain and Abel. All right. Cain murders Abel. Abel murders Cain. I don't know. We'll get it. And so then right there, generation two, all right, right at generation two, we've now brought murder. So we had deceit. We had blame. We had shame. Those are all things that happen in the first generation. And then generation two, we get right to it, and it's murder. And then it gets worse and worse and worse and worse, and stuff starts piling on. And here we are, uh, I don't know, a couple thousand generations later in humanity, and the world has gotten increasingly evil because there is an exponential effect of sin on the world. Each generation is born into the sinfulness of the previous generation and then carries that sinfulness with us into the next generation. Okay, a couple of passages that deal with this. So this is um, Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. I'm keeping Barrett on his toes because I'm going a little out of order here. So Romans 1, 29 to 31 says this. It says, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, 
evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. I love that those two are right next to each other, by the way. (laughs) Inventors of evil, we've all called our kids that, and disobedient to parents, we've called our kids that. All right. Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. So here's here's the thing. Paul's describing, by the way, I use the the Rembrandt painting the canvas black. I'll use it again when we start Romans because Romans 1, 2, and 3 are Paul painting the canvas black. He goes through like worldly people in chapter 1, like pagans and people sleeping with everybody and all, you know, just like the the world. And and he's like, yeah, they're evil and they're broken. And then he goes to, uh, but you, O judge, and he talks about people that are morally superior in their own minds to the pagan people. And he says, yeah, you fall short of the glory of God too. And then he goes to people that are trying to get to God through religion and trying to earn their way up the ladder. And he says, and you're missing it too. The pagans, the moral people, and the religious people that are missing the heart of God, all of you fall short of the glory of God. This is the reality of our sinfulness. But what the Bible teaches us is that every generation is taking this on and that phrase inventors of evil is actually somewhat helpful. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the sin today looks a little bit different than the sin from 100 years ago and the sin from 1,000 years ago and the sin from 2,000 years ago because humanity is finding new ways to express its rebellion to God. Every generation. We invent it. It's what at our core, in sin, we do. And we're getting pretty creative. And I think we have Satan's help, but there's stuff that's going on in this world that looks very different than it did 100 or 1,000 years ago. And this invention of evil is part of the state of the world that we are in. So what we have is humanity born into a sin nature because the world has, or I'm sorry, not the world, We are born into a sin nature because Adam and Eve sinned and it brought sin into the world and Romans teaches us that we're sinful because Adam sinned. So we are sinful. Also, we sin. Because of that identity, then we actively sin. We're doing sinful things. And then lastly, the world itself is sinful. It's in a state of corruption. It's not going to naturally point us towards God. It's going to naturally take us away from God. So that's the state of the things that are happening. Now, if you're like, okay, this is dark. Here's the thing. Sometimes our reaction is, but the world doesn't always feel that bad. I know decent people. I know decent people that aren't Christians. They've been generous. They've been merciful. They've been kind. They are good people. They do good things. And I want to say this. The doctrine of sin does not mean that all humanity is always as bad as it could be. And that's an important thing to understand. That's not what the doctrine of sin is teaching, that all of humanity is always as bad as it could be. But what the doctrine of sin does teach us is that we are incapable of righteousness, the standard of holy purity that is God. We are incapable of that apart from the help that God provides for us. Again, next week. So when we understand this reality of people not being as bad as they could be, and we try and understand it, we look to places like common grace. Okay, so here's the thing. You might not know God at all. A person might not know God at all, but there are inherently good things in the world that God has allowed us to experience. Things like Waking up in the morning, taking a fresh breath of air, and being able to enjoy the fact that you're biologically alive. That you can run 400 miles a day, or that you could uh, enjoy snowboarding and experience the joy of going down a mountain. Like those Those are parts of common grace that we get to experience creation. Relationship. You don't have to be a Christian to be in relationship. You don't have to be a Christian to love your spouse. You don't have to be a Christian to love your kids. You don't have to be a Christian to love your parents. You get to experience those things as an act of God's common grace. He's allowed humanity to experience things, even if they're not obedient to him and walking with him. He's given these gracious things for humanity to experience. Like 
Big-time moments, euphoric, big-time moments. There are lots of non-Christians that have been in a stadium when U2 is playing, and they just hit, I still haven't found what I'm looking for, and you're just like, yeah! <laughs> and we can experience those good and beautiful things with or without Jesus. Sorry, didn't mean to go there. That was totally on accident. Thanks, U2. <laughs> Thanks. There's a passage in Romans 7:18. It says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. There's part of humanity and part of the common grace that's, that God's given us that's what has created societies with morality, with common decency, with the ability to build governments and economies, with the ability to actually interact with each other in a, in a decent way. There's something powerful to the fact that you could go to every culture on earth. There's no culture on earth that has said that murder is morally good. There's not one. Not one that we found, that sociologists and anthropologists have found. There's not one culture that has said that it is good to murder your fellow citizen. 100% would say that that is wrong. You're breaking code. And in that, philosophers would look at that and say, that's actually evidence of God, that that is somehow implanted in us, that there's a universal good that all people, whether they know God or not, ascribe to at a baseline level as part of a universal good, right? Animals don't carry that. Animals will tear into each other. I was just watching a video from, oh, what time? Sorry, oh, I'll shut up. <laughs> I was just watching a video. I went to Victoria Falls a bunch of years ago with uh, actually Preston Sprinkle, the guy that I quoted with, and there are baboons on the, on the trail. You have to walk past baboons to get to Victoria Falls, and there's no gates or fences. It's not a zoo. They are wild. And the signs say, do not make eye contact with the baboons. They will hurt you. <laughs> it's terrifying. It is terrifying. And these animals, they'll just rip into you without morality. They don't think about it twice. And that's the, that's the difference. That's part of the difference of humanity is that we have baked into us this sense of common decency. So the point of the doctrine of sin is that we are utterly corrupt we're not always as bad as we could be, but we are utterly corrupt when it comes to standing before a holy and righteous God, and we are in need of a Savior. And if you don't believe that, that about our sin, then what is the point of a Savior? And that's what the Bible builds off of. That's the whole story of Jesus, is that we all fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. 100% of us deserve eternal death because of our sinfulness. But God is here on this rescue mission to help people find their way back to himself. And that's what Rob is going to talk about next week. So part of this series, I'm asking different people to share why is this good news. I've asked Justin Newman to do the hard, challenging thing of bringing why is the doctrine of man and the doctrine of sin good news for us as a church and for the world. So Justin, why don't you come on up and uh, do the hard work of sharing why this is good news. Welcome Justin Newman. Okay, so I, I'm going to jump right into it. Um, I'm Justin Newman. I, um, my wife Kim and my son Sawyer are back there. Uh, we uh, have also a son who's in the Air Force and a daughter who's starting her second year at Liberty University. Uh, we've been coming to Anthem. We were here before COVID, uh, shortly before that, and got to experience the tent which um, we really enjoy. But 
uh, at the beginning of this process, Matt asked several of us to come up and reflect on uh, each week these, top, these topics, these doctrines, and why they're good news. And I was excited to jump in and be a part of it. So here we go. First thing I'm going to do is just I'm going to separate these two, like Matt did, into the two doctrines. The doctrine of man is good news, and then also the doctrine of sin is good news. And if you're skeptical of that last idea... Uh, hang in there with me because I was thinking the same thing. How can sin be good news? But I'm going to come back to that in a few minutes. First, the doctrine of man is good news. And as Matt mentioned, it starts uh, with the story of our humanity, our identity. And some of the most interesting and successful superhero movies or Star Wars series are the classic origin stories. We, we already know about the characters. We've been introduced to them in movies or books or on uh, TV on Saturday mornings. Um, but what we really are fascinated with is how they became who they or who we know them to be. For instance, Peter Parker, nerdy high school kid, gets bit by a spider, and it's radioactive, and he becomes Spider-Man. Um, we find uh, that, the, that the evil Darth Vader was once a lovable little kid and uh, a young man full of promise until his world goes sideways. So in books and in movies, we make connections to the, the protagonists and the antagonists, and we want to know more about them, their origin stories. Uh, Matt even mentioned that sin has an origin story that, uh, that, that we'll talk about later on down the road. But mankind's identity is our origin story. It's, it's that we are made in the image of God. Matt referred to it in Latin as imago Dei. The understanding that everyone is created in the image of God should change our views about how we see each other and how we relate to them and how we act towards them. Gender, race, appearance... Um, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, none of these things should factor into how we love one another. The New Testament calls on us to love one another over a dozen times. Why? Because God loves us, and each of us are fearfully and wonderfully made in his image. I was telling my son that, and, and he said, Dad, what does that mean, fearfully? Because fearfully is the, the connotation of fear. And, and I said, well, uh, let's look that up. And, um, and I found out that in Hebrew, fearfully means made with great reverence, heartfelt interest, and with respect. And wonderfully means unique and set apart. And that is how God made us. And that is good news. One of the groups of people that really took this to heart, this idea of how we were to see each other and relate to each other in the same way, was a group of people back in the 17th century called the Quakers, the Society of Friends. It's the little guy that you see on your oatmeal box with the funny hat. The Quakers, they were a group of religious dissidents because they didn't really necessarily agree with the way the Anglican Church had been operating things in England, and so they left, uh, mostly because of persecution. And one of the reasons that their persecution was so intense was because they bought into this idea that we were all the same in God's eyes. This silly notion that God sees each of us the same. Why? Because we were made in his perfect image. In other words, the Quakers used the lens of God to see others. They tried to look past their differences. They saw others as being equal. And as you might imagine, if you know anything about 17th century Europe, it was based on uh, a system of the haves and the have-nots. And the haves, the lords and the nobles, they did not appreciate being looked upon in the same way as the peasants. But the Quakers didn't care. They stood for what they believed in. And they were persecuted for it. So be a Quaker. Disregard how the world might look at an individual. 
and see them as someone who is fearfully and wonderfully made. The idea that we are made in the image of God should also help us be a little bit easier on how we see ourselves. We are all flawed, but our sinful nature should not prevent us from also seeing ourselves as fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm a middle school teacher, and I see a lot of students who are extremely hard on themselves and struggle with identity crises. Being a teenager in this world is tough. They, uh, and when we talk about the word identity, all sorts of connotations are stirred up in the minds of these young people. However, a simple reminder that their identity is in Christ and not in the world is a great place to start for all of us. As a history teacher, I try to stress the importance of examining the past, but with an eye toward the future. Our past is rooted in our creation. It's our identity. But our future is secured in Christ. The problem for a lot of 14-year-olds is that it is challenging for them to live anywhere but in the present. Even, I even struggle with this at times, and I'm sure we all do. So I want to tell you a story about a young man on my baseball team, a great kid. He wasn't, the big, he wasn't a big kid. He didn't have a very good arm. He couldn't hit well. He wasn't very dependable in the field. And he also ran the bases like he was carrying his 40-pound backpack. So the other kids were kind to a degree and encouraging when he dropped a ball or struck out, made a bad throw. But he could tell they were getting frustrated, and he knew that they didn't want him to be anywhere near the field when the game was on the line. Needless to say, life on the baseball field was not a lot of fun for this guy. In addition to that, he wasn't exactly hitting it out of the park in class either. I found out that he was very close to being academically ineligible because of his grades. And so it seemed like the world was just crumbling down on top of this kid. So I found him after a particularly rough practice, and it was clear to me that he was unhappy. He told me that he stinks at baseball, that the other kids hate him, he was failing in math, and that it was pretty clear he was a loser. He went on to try to convince me of how miserable his life was, and I let him. And I got the feeling that he just needed to dump this on someone. I looked at him for about 10 seconds after he stopped talking, and I just said to him, maybe you should try golf. <laughs> now, I seriously said that. And he looked at me, and he said, ha, ha, Coach Newman, and he rolled his eyes as far back into his head as a teenager can do. And I knew it would make him laugh, and I knew that through humor, I could make a connection with this kid, and we did, and we had a real conversation. In general, this young man was not feeling very good about his identity, especially in the eyes of his peers, which, by the way, is the world to a lot of kids, to most kids, I would say. Um, at one point, he said that he sometimes felt like he was just garbage. I told him of the numerous times throughout the Bible that we are told how God has had fearfully and wonderfully made us in his perfect image. And then I emphatically told him that God does not make garbage. This young man and all of us are created to have an, a unique relationship with God that was his identity, that is our identity. Ephesians 2.10 reminds us, that we are God's handiwork created in Jesus Christ to do the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. I assured that young man that God had chosen him and that he was on a special mission and he was to use the gifts that he was going to discover one day to carry out that mission. I knew this was coming. He asked me, what's my mission? And I just smiled at him and I said, you know, I don't know the answer to that. And that was okay if he didn't know the answer either. 
But God was going to reveal that to him. I explained that he wasn't going to find his value or his identity in baseball or math or schoolwork or his friends. That his value was rooted in God and the idea that his pursuit of that mindset would be life-changing. And that is certainly good news. Now, several years later, this young man was enjoying success in school. He was a member of the high school golf team. <laughs> I'm only kidding. He, he, actually, he actually became a pretty good high school baseball player. Um, but our origin story shows the special relationship that God made with humanity. And as Matt said earlier, that relationship continues after the fall. That man was created in God's image was not removed when sin entered the story. So this brings us to the idea that somehow the doctrine of sin is good news. I have to be honest, I really wrestled with this when I when um, I found out that this was the topic that I was going to be talking about. And when Matt and I discussed this, I, my comment to him was something along the lines of, well, there's absolutely no good news about sin, so what exactly do you want me to say? And um, he just kind of looked at me, and he smiled an enthusiastic smile, and he said, the good news is found in Romans 3.23 and 24. Which, by the way, was one of the first verses that I, had, that I remember memorizing when I was a kid in Awana at my uh, first Baptist church back in Pennsylvania. That's part of my origin, origin story, but I'm pretty sure Disney Plus is not going to be really interested in that anytime soon. So, Romans 3.23, it says, For there is no distinction... For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Now we are getting to the good news part. Justified by his grace. I was reminded of the acronym for grace the other day. God's royalty at Christ's expense. When talking about good news, this is perhaps the most important element of this doctrine, God's royalty at Christ's expense. For all have sinned, all of us. We're all the same in this regard. And there aren't levels either. It's not like keeping score. Uh, you can't look across the room and, and you know, nudge your spouse and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. It's, we're all in this together. We're all the same. And that's part of the good news. We are all beautiful and we are all broken. Beautiful because we were made in God's image, but broken because we are fallen and in need of grace and redemption. Our redemption, which is the good news, stems from one of God's greatest gifts to mankind, free will. We get to choose the path that we follow. Whether that path is one that seeks an authentic relationship with God or one where that path seeks to pursue sin. Of course, we are influenced by our parents, by our, our friends, our teachers, our coaches, our coworkers, and social media, but ultimately we have the freedom to forge our own path through the desires that we have and the choices that we make. In America, more than a lot of other countries, part of our identity rests somewhat in the forebears of freedom from an oppressive government. Along with a distinct Christian heritage, our country has freedom in its DNA. However, this freedom gives us the right, or gives us the choice, actually, to reject God and his son, Jesus. The good news is our sin shows us the magnitude of God's love. He didn't write us off. He didn't turn his back on us. He vigorously pursues us and still does. When I uh, have a student that I'm at odds with and have to have a conversation with them, it's hard for a, a kid to think about me separating what he did wrong and, and who he is and who I love. And, you know, I love that kid, but he's a knucklehead and sometimes he messes up and that's part of my job. 
God has a deep love for us, but we're knuckleheads. And sometimes we screw up, but that doesn't change things. Perhaps we can better grasp, grasp the magnitude of his love and his desire for us to have a relationship with him because his response to our sin is proof of God's indisputable grace, his mercy, and his redemption through Jesus. I want to wrap some things up here with a passage from Romans chapter 5 where Paul talks about peace, hope, suffering, and love. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The problem that existed between us and God was fixed. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. There was nothing else to do at that point to fix that problem. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. This hope is not just wishful thinking. It's a promise by what God has done for all of us. Verse 3 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. We rejoice not because of our suffering. That would be silly. That would be like saying, yeah, I lost my job. But instead, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that God is working within us through our suffering. And verse 5 says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Through the Holy Spirit, God is changing how we live life, how we view life, how we love others, how we interact with others. And that's the good news. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word and your promises fulfilled. Lord, thank you for your son, Jesus. And... Um, just the, the benchmark that we can set to, to try and love others. Uh, I pray for this time. I pray for the rest of this week. I thank you for your word and its goodness, and I thank you for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.